The book of Revelation, chapter 1. If you forgot your Bible, please raise your hand and the usher will make sure he runs a Bible over to you and pass it to you. I hope you're bringing your pad of paper and pen or pencil for you to make taking notes. Very important as well. Because you, if you come with the expectation, a heart of expectation, that you want to hear from God, He speaks to you and I by and through His Word. But you have to have the expectation, the desire for God to hear, to, to speak to you. Yes, not you, not you here that come here, but others places I've heard of where people go to church because it's just a social club. And they really don't have a desire to hear from God. They're just wanting to have social time. And social time with brothers and sisters is sweet time. Don't get me wrong. That's why we have fellowship after this service. Our service continues with fellowship. Because God uses that time in your life. But not only on Sundays do you want a desire to hear from God through his word. But you have a desire through the week each and every day as you open up the word. And it's just you and him. You want God to speak to you. Because you have a lot to ask him, a lot you want to hear from him. And today as we open up your word, God's word, he, he's going to speak to you if you have that desire this morning. And he'll do it in an individual way and he'll, as we will see, it will pierce right to your heart. And it's God speaking to you, it's not me, it's God speaking to you. And so if you get upset, don't get upset with me. <laughs> don't get mad at me. You can, you, can, you, can work, you can wrestle with God on those things that he's going to speak to your heart about. Now we see here a spectacular vision today. And it will continue through the rest of the, the book of Revelation. We see here that John, the Apostle John, was given an incredible moment in his life. At the end of his life, he's in his 80s. Probably maybe even a little older. And we find that John is going to, Jesus is going to reveal himself to him directly. And give him what we are reading today. And for him was commanded to write down these words. It says, I, John, both your brother and companion... Notice he didn't start off. I, John the Apostle, is the elite and the only and the last apostle to stand and I can create, create victory. I told all the other guys I was going to outlive them. No, no, he didn't do any boasting. He didn't do anything. He humbly said, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island, oh, is it Maui? No, 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 it's the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
Now, as we take a look here in this first verse, there's so much to this verse because we see that John the Apostle is sitting on an island like Alcatraz Island there in, over in California. So it's off the mainland, but it is a rock and it is, represents prison. It is a place that has no walls because the, the wild, the, these things called sharks can keep people from swimming back to the mainland. But that's where the government, Rome, would take them and to put them and banish them forever to die in the mines, uh, mining over there. It was a rocky, rocky place. It was very few trees, if had any at all. But they mined and they were slavery in the government, harvesting that marble, harvesting whatever minerals they can to take back to the mainland. But that's where they were banished if you were in prison versus killing you. Remember, they tried to kill John. They literally tried to boil him in oil and God would not let him die. He survived it without a problem at all. No third degree burns, no, no boiling of the skin. Literally shocked them all. Domitian, Emperor Domitian was just shocked to his core and he said, get him out of my sight. He has way too much influence. If God is keeping him alive, he can cause way too many problems for us. Banish him to the island of Patmos so he'll never be heard again. He can never be used again in this God thing of Christianity. Get him out of my sight. Oh, how foolish that emperor was. Because we know in the historian, the historian Eusebius also mentions that John was imprisoned there at Patmos under that reign of the Roman emperor Domitian. Or Domitian. We also see the historian Victorianus also talked about how John, and through his old age, was forced to labor in the mines there in Patmos. But early sources in his history show that around A.D. 96, after Domitian's death, this new emperor who came in, Nerva, or Nerve, came into power and was more liberal and allowed things to happen. And we see John was on this island probably around about a year and a half during this, this, this banningment. But it was in that year and a half that God spoke to him that we have the book of Revelation that we read today. The most, one of the most powerful book, my favorite book, I'm sure it will be your favorite book by the time you're done. But here, what's happening, this is it's a beautiful thing. The, the world may think they banish you. The world may try to keep you from talking and doing what God wants to do, have you do in your life. And they may even put you in an island and try to do, even imprison you. But it is through those moments God shows up and does incredible things through God's people. And here, God literally gives him a vision, a spectacular vision, and he writes this down word for word, and we have the book of Revelation, talking about the future, our future as children of God, but also the future of those who reject God. Don't forget, the book of Revelation is all the great promise for you and I as believers. We're going home. We're going to have eternal life with him. But those who reject Jesus... They also will know they will be with Satan and all the demonics in the lake of fire. 
because they rejected God. God didn't put them there. They chose. They did not want God. They wanted to live a life for themselves because they think they're better than anything of this Christian life that they talk about. I just don't believe it. Well, I hope today after this, God speaks to you directly through and by his word that you will have a fresh, spectacular vision of Jesus in your life and you will surrender your life to Christ if that's speaking of you. Because here we see here Patmos, this rocky, volcanic, desolate island about 10 miles long, 6 miles wide, about 30 to 40 miles away from the mainland of Turkey, or also 60 miles from Ephesus, one of the churches that he's going to be writing to. A place of punishment, a place of banishment, but it's a place where they thought they could silence the apostle, but instead God isolated him to do the most miraculous work in and through his life at the end of his life, and that is to give him the book of Revelation. Oh, sometimes when we age, we think it's the end of our life. What can God do in our life? I'm old. I'm barely making it. I don't know when I'm going to go see God. And God says, that is when I want to do the most from you. I got a spectacular vision that I can do some great work through your life, even right at the very end, because God's how God works. It's a but God moment here. But God had a plan for John's life. Do you think John knew that being banished to this island was going to be the highlight of his life? And most people say, why were you put in on the island? If you go by the eyes and you just leave, you just lean in your own understanding, and if you only live by what you see, everyone draws the conclusion. He was banished because the Roman emperor didn't like him. He was causing too much problems. Ban him away, get him away, let him die over there so we don't have to worry about him. But that's not what John realized once he, God revealed himself to them there on the island, it went and everything changed. He says, no, no, I wasn't banned for punishment. I was brought there by God so that I could do a great work for God by writing down, by being isolated and silence. I can write down word for word what God wanted me to write down. He says it right there in the, at, the, at the end of verse 9. He says, I was called for, for, to Patmos, right? For what? For, key word in the language here, for the word of God. Why were you went to the island and isolated and completely isolated away from everyone thinking you're going to just die there? For the word of God. To write down the word of God. Not only that, and for, another for, connecting word here, and for, what? To bring the testimony of Jesus Christ, the power of Christ in one's life. Because what he did, being on that island, thinking he was going to die for his faith, God said, no, it's going to bring a testimony of who I am in your life. You're going to be a bright light for me. And for centuries to come. We're reading these words that were given to him in this banished state on a rocky torturous prison for the glory of God. That's amazing. How do you translate that? How do you bring that application here? If you find yourself banished in your mind, you feel isolated in all these things, 
Look up. God may have something for you to re reveal to you. Don't give up. Have hope that that God is going to reveal something beautiful in your life. He might actually give you a few steps ahead of what plan he has for your life. What direction to take. Reassuring of what you're doing for him and what you, where he wants you is exactly where he wants you to be. Do you know that, that how God does that? And he does. Now what we see here is his glorious testimony of Jesus Christ. And what we will see here in the rest of this book is the fact that this testimony of Jesus Christ, he's returning for you and I, his bride, the, the, the church. It's going to reveal to not only his return, oh, the eternal life with him. And how beautiful it is. In verse 10 and 11, we see here a couple more. He says, I was in the spirit. Underline that key, 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 key verse right there. I was in the spirit. When? On the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of, not a trumpet itself, but as of a trumpet saying, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia. What are those seven churches? To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The seven churches. Sitting on the western side of the modern day Turkey today. And we see this is where God is going to have do a work here and be the first churches to reveal the word of God. All the way until today where it's now revealed to us as a church. But notice this, for this to happen, God had to bring John in the spirit. When, what does John mean by saying he was in the spirit? This, this seems to have some more meaning than simply walking in the Spirit. You could be walking in the flesh, or you could be walking in the Spirit. But no, he was in the Spirit. It means much more here. John was carried beyond normal senses into a state where God could reveal supernaturally the contents of this book. Some people would say it was an out-of-body experience. I don't tend to go to that direction of describing because it has a very negative connotation today. But he was, God took him into the spirit where it was this unique spiritual experience that for John, for John here to be able to, not only to, he, John saw, he heard, and he recorded was the results of this supernatural revelation that God gave him. He was able to see, hear, and record what God wanted him to do, commanded him to do. There are four references to John through the book of Revelation about a moments where he was in the spirit. We'll give them to you right now. The first one is here in verse 10. First here at Patmos. The next time he is in the spirit is in heaven in a heavenly vision in Revelation chapter 4 verse 2. 
Then he's in the wilderness. God brings him into the wilderness and gives him this spectacular vision in the wilderness. We see that in Revelation chapter 17, verse 3. And the fourth time, he's on, placed on the mountain of God in Revelation 21.10. Oh, we can't wait to get to all of those. Now, he was in the Spirit on a very specific day, he says, on the Lord's Day. What is the Lord's Day? It does not say the day of the Lord. Those are two different things. The Lord's Day is as Christians proclaim and as he proclaimed, as, as John proclaimed, and the Christians from the very beginning of the, the birth of the church claimed the Lord's Day. Because the emperor had their day and everyone has their day. And everyone, everyone had, even have people have, even today have their day and their month. No, no. As Christians, we have the Lord's Day. What is that day? It's the day that we have that remembrance to Jesus by honoring the first day of the week, which is, is Sunday. The first day of the week is Sunday. It's the day on which Christians, you and I, meet for worship and in commemoration of the Lord's resurrection day, the day he was raised from the dead. That's why we come here on Sundays. That's why we come to worship together, to study the word together, because we remember our Lord's day, the day he was raised from the dead. And our Lord, the one we worship, the one we honor and glorify and commit our life to, is alive. Our Lord is alive. We do not worship a dead saint. And we do not worship a dead religious leader. We worship a living, risen Christ, the Messiah that's spoken from the beginning of time, who was in the Garden of Eden. And he will be speaking to him all the way to the very end of the book of Revelation, where we find you and I as believers dwelling with him for eternity. That's how powerful this is. How do you know, Pastor? Where do we see other places of the Lord's day? Go back to Acts chapter 20, verse 7. And 1 Corinthians 16.2, those are two references to show the early church worshipped on Sunday, the first day of the week. Yes, not Monday is not the first day of the week. Sunday is the first day of the week. We get to start our week great with God. You're going to have a terrible week if you don't start well the beginning of the week on a Sunday, worshipping together as brothers and sisters, worshipping our Lord and studying of his word. To prepare us, to equip us, to go out, to be lights, and to be salt into this very dark and very dry and very dark and dry and corrupt world that we live in right now. But this is not our home. Just remember, this is not our home. I used to, I, I, I remember Ponder, I always say, jokingly, this is a vacation gone bad and we're ready to go home. But I don't even think this was a vacation anymore. I don't even think we're, I mean, I can even classify it as a vacation gone bad. Because it's getting so dark and so corrupt. Lord, come, home, come back quickly. For the sake of our children, our grandchildren, and our lives. He, here on the Lord's day, he, I heard behind me 
a loud voice. It was so loud and so commanding and so prevalent and so alerting, it was like a trumpet being blown. If you ever heard a trumpet blow, it catches your attention immediately. In the military, you hear the trumpet blow, you know there's something going on. It's the beginning of the day, in the middle of the day, at the end of the day. It's a command for something. But when the trumpet blows, it shows the sign of authority. This voice that he heard had such power, such authority, such commandment of change that he knew when he heard that voice, it says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Those two titles only speak of God, Yahweh. Only speaks of Yahweh. Only speaks of God Almighty. And what, what does it say here? And what you see, John, you will write it down in a book. And when you write this down, you're going to not just sit there for your own book on your own shelf. You're going to send it to the seven churches. And he actually, which churches, he even gives them the churches he gets a sense. Why? Because there was more than seven churches in this area of this time. If you remember, Paul the Apostle wrote to seven churches as well. He wrote to Rome, to Corinth, Corinth, to Galatia, to Ephesus, to Colossae, to Philippi, and to Thessalonica. So there was other churches, but it was these seven churches that he wanted, God wanted to highlight for your purpose and my purpose, but for their purpose at that time. And we will find out in chapters 2 and 3, because in 2 and 3, talk about each of those seven churches, and we're going to see why he chose those. But he heard the voice. There was no question. The first and the last. It's the title of his Lord, Yahweh, the covenant of a God of Israel. The one in the New Testament passages where Jesus clearly claims to be God is right there in this title. And he's commanded by God himself. Commanded to write what he sees. He's going to give, God is going to give John 11 commandments to write in the book of Revelation. 11 times. You will write this. You will write this. You will write this 11 times in the book of Revelation. What that tells me is I see patterns when you see two or three times where God repeats himself. That's why we do word studies and we see right, 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 right. What do you think you should, John get a clue to do? What, what, what's the clue? Right. It shouldn't take more than one. But sometimes God has to repeat himself to us for us to finally get our clue. To, we need to do it. And he says, write. And write again, and write again, and write again. Why? Because God said, these words I'm giving you in the spirit, in this place, and I'm going to give you the ability to write that down, and, and it will be preserved for centuries upon centuries. My word will never cease. That's powerful. When you think about that and ponder on that, why would we not read the Word of God? Why would we not study the Word of God? Unless you don't want to hear from God. 
So we see here God commanding John clearly what to write down and what to do. In verse, in verse 12 and 13 here, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Again, the words are very important here to describe what was happening to John in the spirit. God miraculously, supernaturally revealed these things to him in this vision. And he says, when he turned, I to see the voice. I heard the voice. I heard what he told me, what he commanded me to do. I heard it. I didn't have to look in his eyes at that time. What I need to do is when I turn to see the voice, who, who was, whose voice is this? who was speaking to me, he says, not the fact that he saw Jesus immediately, the Son of Man. No, no, no. He literally saw seven golden lampstands. That's the first thing that caught his eye when he turned around. Now, what are these lampstands? Because here's John turns and he sees Jesus, his Lord, his friend, a spectacular vision. But what he sees first when he turns to look for the voice, the one that's the Alpha and the Omega, the, 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 the first and the last, the trumpet, was, the, the trumpet sounding voice, the command authoritative voice, it could be only, no other than Jesus, his master, his Lord, his Savior. And it was at this moment, John's opportunity to see Jesus again. Remember, this is the Apostle John who loved Jesus. The best one of his best moments was in the upper room, if you remember. And he was laying on the chest of Jesus, having a meal together. So close. So intimate. Such friendship. Such love. Then to watch him be tortured on the cross and to be beaten beyond recognition. But then it didn't end. He was raised on the, from the dead on the third day and he was on the earth and over 500 people saw Jesus walking in his resurrected body. And then John, one of the apostles was right there on the Mount of Olives and watched Jesus ascend into the heaven and be engulfed by the clouds. That was his last memory of him. But now, after 60 years, now Jesus is coming back to the apostle John on a remote island to speak and to meet him directly. Oh, can you put yourself in John's mindset? 60 years. But he saw these, these lampstands. They're not candlesticks. They're not the menorahs here. 
but they are the freestanding oil lamp stands. Remember, there's the stand and then the lamps were on that lamp stand and the, the lamp stand never produces the light. It was the lamp that produces the light. So he's talking about just the lamp stands here. And there were seven separate lampstands. He says right here, there's an image that reminds us of the golden lampstand that stood in the tabernacle in the, in the, in the temple in Exodus 25. But in the old lampstand, it was the one lampstand with seven lamps on it. Here it appears there are seven lampstands. Not one lampstand but seven lamp stands. Why is that important for you and I? Why is that important to give that to John for us? It's because the light doesn't come from the lamp stands. The lamp comes from the oil lamps themselves. The stands merely make the light more visible for those who are looking. Therefore, the lampstands are a good picture of the church today. We don't produce the light. We simply display the light. Bearing his light in the world is the church's primary purpose. It is for us as lights to burn on his lampstand for the, his glory to go out into this fallen and dark world. That is how it works. The seven lampstands addressed in chapter 2 and 3. He's going to address these seven churches because we have as an assembly of believers should shine for the Lord, Matthew 5.16. By holding fast to the word of life and to proclaiming it in this dark world. We see that as our purpose as a church, as a believers, we're to do that in this dark world. We see that in Philippians 2, verses 14 through 16. But notice he sees the seven lampstands, but then John saw in the midst of those seven lampstands one like the Son of Man. Jesus is there in the midst of these lampstands. The Son of Man. The figure of glory. Looking back into this prophecy that was talked about comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Have you ever wondered what Jesus of Nazareth looked like? I wonder what Jesus really looked like. Have you ever asked that question? As a believer, I, I'm sure you have. You're not alone to think that way when you sit there and you see pictures of Jesus and pictures of stuff. You go, I wonder if that's what he looked like. He was Jewish. So Jewish people are usually shorter, <laughs> a little stockier, and their skin is not purely white. And they don't have usually flowing hair. But biblically speaking, we really don't know what he looked like. There's only one glimpse in this scripture that talks about what he looked like. The book of Isaiah contains the only reference of Jesus' appearance. More than 700 years before the nativity scene when Jesus came on the scene. 
God gave Isaiah, the prophet, a description of what the Messiah would be, look like. Now, before we talk about it, look, look at this. He says that he was clothed with a garment down to the feet. That means anyone in that time had a gown that got to the feet means that is a man who doesn't work. Who's not going out for war either. It was someone of authority, was someone who had, not the ones that go up to your knees ready to move freely to work hard. No, no, they were down to the feet means they were in a position of authority. They were not going to do hard work. They were there in command to oversee and to overlook and to watch over what was going on here. And it's those clothes that he sees here as a de depiction of the fact of this great deity and authority, our king, in his presence. And the, the golden band that's around the chest represents the garments of a high priest we see in Exodus 29.5. But it was a solid, brown, uh, solid gold, not just gold thread like a high priest, but solid gold band. Beautiful description so far of what he sees of Jesus. He continues in verse 14 through 16. He says, his head and hair were, were white like wool, as white as snow and his eyes like a flame of fire his feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters he had in his right hand seven stars and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength Ah, the head and the hair, white as wool. A lot of curly hair. Every time I think of wool, it's like a lot, like really thick, bushy, curly hair. It speaks of wisdom. White hair speaks of wisdom. It speaks of timelessness, experience. It's a phrase, white as snow, it also emphasizes purity of the one he sees. It's that white hair and head also connects Jesus with the Ancient of Days, also noted in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. It's, I'll read it for you. The term of ancient days belongs to God the Father, yet it also agrees to Christ, who is equal with the Father as to his divine nature. His eyes are like a flame of fire. They can burn right straight through anything. Fire is often connected to judgment in the scripture. Matthew 5, 22, 2 Peter 3, 7. Jesus' eyes display the fire of searching, penetrating, and judgment of the situation or one's life. The feet were like fine brass. Since fire is connected also with judgment, keep this, I said judgment two or three times so far, keep, make that note, that the brass is connected to a judgment. These feet were like fine brass, as if, if refined in a 
furnace. It was all the impurities are out. It's just again speaking of impurity, so fine, so beautiful that the brass is so clear it can be used as a mirror to reflection, and that's how they had mirrors back in those days. But it's this refinement, it speaks of someone who has been through the fires of judgment. And Jesus has been through the refiner's fire, has he not? He was beaten, crucified, spat upon. He went through the refiner's fire. But the brass also speaks of a metal connected with judgment and sacrifice. How do we know that? In Exodus 27, verses 1 through 6. Israel's altar of sacrifice was made on what? Made of brass. And it was called the brazen altar. So when you see these words, you have to make the connections. Again, brass connected to judgment. We also see that brass in those days was the strongest of metal. It's the strongest known in the ancient world at that time. And it was therefore the feet like fine brass was an emblem of his stability. That permanence when it was made of that metal. And But brass is being considered as the most durable of all the metallic substance or compounds of the day. Is brass. His voice we see here, as John writes, is his voice as the sound of many waters. It was like the Niagara Falls. You're standing right there and the falls are just roaring with power. So what came out of his mouth was these, Jesus' voice had this power, this majesty of a mighty waterfall. We also see he had in his right hand seven stars. These seven stars speak of the leaders or representatives of the seven churches mentioned in not only in verse 11, but also in verse 20. The stars are securely in the hand of Jesus. And since seven, as we talked about in previous, seven, that number of seven is the number of completion. And we can say that he's got the whole church in his hands. Don't sing it. He got the whole. No, no. Some of you are too young. You're like, what's he? the old pastor up there? What is he doing? Losing it? The older guys, I know you sing it. I know you know the song. Out of his mouth went a sharp two edged sword. This is a heavy, long, javelin sword type, about six feet long. It was usually in his right, the right shoulder, so when they pulled out for war, it was this long sword they pulled out, and it was cut on both sides. So it doesn't matter if he was swinging left or right or up or down. They say that sword could cut a person's body right in half with one swoop. Sharp. Heavy. Effective, powerful. The word here for that word sword is romphia. And it speaks of not something that he had a little tiny sword in his mouth and holding on to and going in to fight and battle. No, no, no. It speaks of the sword is in the word speaks of this word. His weapon is the word of God. How do you fight back spiritual warfare? 
the word of God? How do you push back and fight back against darkness in your life and in this world? The word of God. That means you need to know the word of God. You need to apply the word of God. You need to be able to speak the word of God. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. The glory of Jesus is so great, so shiny, so bright, so clear. It is hard to even look at him, he's so bright. Jesus was in that same glory as in his transfiguration because we said in Matthew 17 too, his face shone like the sun. And here John is experiencing once again Seeing the countenance of Jesus. See, everything in this spectacular vision speaks of strength, speaks of majesty, authority, and righteousness, of purity. And it's in this impressive difference, it's important to note here in this book at this moment. Why? Because the difference in the vision of Jesus for, for so long in our lives, his pictures and thoughts and stuff, especially in the gospel, is people portray him as this, this weak, this delicate, almost infeminate kind of portrayal of Jesus. But here, in the final book, the final stage of life here, it speaks of one who the real Jesus is. The one John says, here's the real Jesus. The Jesus that lives and reigns in heaven today. He is one of strength and majesty and authority and power and purity and righteousness. This is the one we, we serve. This is the one we put our trust in, in, in our lives in. That's who the real Jesus is. See, the gentle Savior of the gospel now presents himself to his church. And we will see that in verses, chapters 2 and 3, I should say. Girded for battle. He's ready for war. He is ready. He's a conqueror. He's a king. He's the high priest. He's ready to come in and deal with the churches and deal with those who turned against him. And we will see that in the book of Revelation when nations will come against his people. And will actually come against him. And all he has to do is speak. And he'll be destroyed. All he has to speak in fire and brimstone is going to come down upon this world and, and bring judgment upon this. He is ready to finalize everything. And he will rule and reign forever and ever. Amen? See, a warning is to all of us in this book. Even to his church with its growing signs of corruption within the church. And the apostasy that we have been studying through, it led us to this book. And that he will not tolerate a lukewarm half-heartedness or disloyalty to him. It's all coming to an end, my brothers and sisters. We must be right with God and be following with God. 
He's given us warning. He's given us his word. He is no question. He says, when you see the signs, look up, I draw, I draw nigh. Be ready. We should consider the fact that this is the only physical description of Jesus given it to us in the Bible. And only one other, and I mentioned in Isaiah 53.2, and it says this in Isaiah 53.2. Only other description. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So when he was born a baby and he grew up, there was nothing distinctive about him in his characteristics whatsoever. He's not going to be on the, on the top list of the, of the next movie star and, and lead, lead actor. He describes him as the should desire him. We should not even desire him. There would be no beauty in him, anything to attract him. He was just a normal guy with power of the universe. Amazing. John continues here in verse 17 and 18. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. You mean, John, you didn't say, bud, dude, I've been missing you for 60 years. Let's sit down, have a cup of coffee, and let's chat and see what things have been going on. How's it hanging up there in heaven? Let me tell you what's been going on around here. You're not going to sit there. When I get to heaven and I see Jesus, I can't wait to tell him, give him my peace of mind. Not that you've ever said that. When I get up there, I've got so many questions. When I see him, oh boy, he, he, I'm, everyone stand inside. I, I'm the only one in line. You didn't say that. I know you never said that. You're going to do exactly what John did. It says right here, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. He, I mean, he couldn't move. He couldn't probably whimper he was just absolute silence but this is the most beautiful verse catch it here but this is a good but remember there's good buts and there's bad buts this is a good but but he Jesus laid his right hand on me did you catch it Jesus loved John so much. He was so paralyzed of the sight and of the presence of his Lord, his friend. Jesus came over and put his hand of compassion and love and, yes, gentleness and assurance and reassurance on John. And what did he say to John? He said to me, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I'm alive 
forevermore. Amen. So be it. Yes, this is true. You saw me when I was alive. You saw me when I was dead. And you saw me when I was alive again. And I will be alive forevermore. I'm not going to die again, John. I, I, eternal state. And John, you don't have to be afraid. God can put a heavy hand on you and me to get our attention when we're not walking rightly with him. And you know the pressure. You feel the weight to get your attention. It's like a dad with his son and he comes and just lovingly puts his hand on his shoulder and the son knows the pressure of the hand. That's dad's hand, that's not mom's hand. <laughs> I know that's dad's hand. And he gets his attention. Here, and God can also put a hand on you and it's so loving and so tender and so gentle and you can feel the strength from that hand actually strengthen you in that moment. John was strengthened and encouraged. Don't be afraid. I'm not here to judge you, John. I'm here to love you, John. I'm never going to leave you. I'm always going to be there. See, Jesus in his heavenly glory. Three years John spent with Jesus in his three-year ministry. That's all the ministry for Jesus was three years. 33 years of age when he died. So at age 30, he started the ministry. In the last three years or so, before he died on the cross, that was his ministry. Part of that, no, it was nowhere to be talked about or found. And in those three years, it changed John's life and all of his other buddies, apostles, and everyone around. And here, Jesus comes to him at this moment. And John, at this moment, knew what a miracle it was that Jesus could shield his glory and his authority while he walked on this earth. Because now he sees the glory. He sees incredible vision, spectacular vision. And realize who he had been walking with for three years. Ate meals together. Slept in the wilderness and slept in and being, you know, people having to, to get out of the area because people wanted to stone them. Going from highs and lows of his life. And now he's right there and he's just absolutely dead. In fear. Because it was such an awesome vision of view that God had to come over there and put his hand on him and show him love and say, don't be afraid. Are you afraid today? Are you living in fear? Uncertainty? Unstableness? Jesus wants to put a hand on your shoulder and say he loves you. And do not be afraid.
Why does he say that to you and me? And we can believe it because he says, I am alive forevermore. So be it. That's why. That's why we can walk so joyfully and so peacefully. See, Jesus comforted John with this compassionate touch. Perhaps the touch of Jesus felt more familiar than the actual appearance of Jesus. Because Jesus' appearance was very different than his three years ministry, sitting there sweating and, and dirty and on the, on, the, on the trails, going from city to city. But he knew the touch of Jesus. And Jesus gave John a command, do not be afraid. Why? Because John didn't need to be afraid. Because he was in the presence of Jesus. And when you're in the presence of Jesus, and you're walking in the Spirit and truth, you have the presence of, of Jesus, and you're going to have the ability to walk without having to fear. You can walk into this confidence, in this relationship with your Savior. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? I'm not talking about a religion with Jesus. I'm talking about do you personally have a relationship with Jesus? Can you really say that? With all confidence. If not, I'll give you an opportunity at the end to give and take that step so you can have that confidence that I'm talking about. Because Jesus is the one you're putting your confidence, your trust in, your belief in, is who lives and who is dead and is alive forevermore. He's a living Savior that we worship. See, remember, the victory that Jesus won over sin and death was a permanent victory. He didn't rise from the dead to, to die again. And no, he says, for you even for an I, he says, I am going to live forevermore. And because your relationship with me, you may pass from this body, but you will not die. You will be in my presence forevermore as well. Now, many times people will say, but what about Satan? What about the de demonics, the demons and all these things? He answers that right here at the end of verse 18. He says, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. I control everything. Satan has no control over everything. I have the keys. That guy is going to be locked up with all of his demonic forces and everyone who is a non-believer will be locked up forever forevermore see jesus is the one who has the keys of hades and of death some in their minds think the devil somehow is lord of hell and somehow are going to rule and reign over hell and there's all this that is not true God rules all. Some imagine that the devil has authority or power to determine life or death. He has no power. Don't give him that power. Don't even ponder on Satan and the demonics. That Jesus who reigns in your life to deal with the demonics. Because Jesus right here tells us he holds the keys of Hades and of death. And we can trust that Jesus never lets the devil borrow the keys.
Never. Verse 19, 20. John is now told some very important verses here in these last two. We talked about it in, in the first time we started here in the book of Revelation. This key verse is for the key for the whole book. It's the divine outline of the book. It says, write the things which you have seen, chapter 1. And the things which are, which will be chapter 2 and 3. And the things which will take place after this, metatauta. Metatauta is the word here, the two words after this. We see that same thing, after this, metatauta. It means after these things. What things? After the church is done, the dispensation of the church, when that church is raptured at the end of chapter 3, before the start of chapter, at the start of chapter 4, the church is no longer here on this earth. We are in heaven with God. And everything from chapter 4 on is all about judgment. We will not go through the judgment, my brothers and sisters. I know you may have come from another church that teaches it happens in the middle of the seven years. It happens at the end of the seven years. Just stick with me here as we go through the scriptures. Whatever you, your position on that, know here at Calvary Chapel we believe in the pre-tribulation. Before the rapture happens, at some point we're raptured out of here. At, and we see it in the scripture. At the, after the churches, the church age, we're out of here. And then it starts the future. And no longer at chapter 4 and on is ever talk about the church. Gone. Nowhere in the church talked about. Why? Because we're gone. We're in the presence of the Lord. So hang with me. Don't let that, the enemy get, get in your head and, and stop you from learning and studying the, word of God, uh, the book of Revelation here. Because here he says to John, these things you must do. John, there's no question. You have to write these down. It's a second commandment he's giving to him to write, give us a structure of understanding of what he's going to write down. So that you and I can all from the past, present, and the future can understand what God has for us. And it's these things you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. That is what we can expect as we continue in the book of Revelation. In verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, there John, and the seven golden lampstands that you saw that I'm standing in the midst of there John. Well, he gives us the answers of what they are. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. Now, as we close this up here, we can see a couple of things, and again, whatever your position is, I'll let me give you what I believe based on the scriptures and studying, and that Jesus is very kind here. Because he brings John through things and helps explain things because scripture always explains scripture. And so we don't have to go looking anywhere else and all the talking gurus and talking heads out there. But we can go look at the scriptures and see what this is. And he kindly interprets his own images to John and for you and I to understand the scriptures. 
The stars in his hand represents the angels of the seven churches. And it's the lampstands that are representing the seven churches themselves. So they go together. So that's important concept of understanding you need to make sure you have. And so why would each church have its own angel? And why does Jesus hold these angels in his hand? That's a question you must think about. Some, some people believe that these angels are the pastors of these seven churches, these seven leaders who are responsible for delivering and to overseeing or ruling or to, to shepherd those churches. Because God holds the pastor responsible for that congregation. Yes, don't be looking and thinking it's a big deal. No big deal. It's a pastor. No big deal. He, must, he plays golf most of the time. He only has to come on Sundays. <laughs> hang with me for us. Hang with me for Monday through Saturday. And on a Sunday, you'll know. The weight of responsibility that God puts on me, I'm held responsible for your life. That's why I want to know you. Today's churches today, people come and go like it's just like I'm shopping at some store. They don't need to know me. Don't ask me for my email. Don't ask for my number because I know you're going to spam me or something with all your ads and, and try to get money. Can, can, you, can you please, my brothers and sisters, lovingly, can you please get over the worldly thinking and think biblically? Can you, can, you, can, you, can you decide in your mind, I'm not going to think worldly. I'm going to think biblically and think what the scripture says. The scripture says, I hold a pastor responsible, the shepherd of the congregation. And that shepherd must know their sheep. And the shepherd wants to know and care for and to, to feed the sheep and to care for the sheep and to protect the sheep, to, to be able to be there for the sheep for the highs and the lows when the wolves are coming after them and confusions and all kinds of things. And when they have little baby sheep and they're growing up and, and to dedicating those little baby sheep and, and to marrying those little baby sheep. And, uh, that is, and I'm going to be held responsible when I stand in front of the judgment. What did you do with the people that I have sent to you? Did you feed my sheep, Corey? I can't say, but, 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 God. Could you have given me better sheep who actually listen? <laughs> that would actually listen and not fall asleep? Who can tolerate more than a 15-minute vignette? who wants more than just cotton candy that actually want to chew on some meat? Could you give me some sheep that were healthy? No, Corey, I'm giving you the broken. I'm giving you the desperate and the, and the lost and the hurting. It's a hospital, Corey, and that is what I'm trading. I need you to mend these people. They're hurting. And you're going to go through the, watching them through the pain and the suffering of life and the hurting and the broken limbs and, and all the boo-boos and all the things. And you're going to pray for them and love them and encourage them because you're going to show grace, Corey, because I showed you so much grace. You're going to love them because I've shown you so much love. And I've brought people in your life, Corey, to feed you. I need you now to feed them. 
care for them. I add to the church. I build the church core. You just show up regardless of how you feel and to love my people. With every ounce of power that I give you by the Spirit of God. I believe the angels are the pastors speaking of overseeing these churches. Now, some people believe these angels are actually guardian angels that are spoken of, that are appointed by God to oversee or to care for or to watch over each of the churches. Now, there are strengths and weaknesses in both of those arguments and any of these interpretations that you may find and have. Just don't forget the main point. These angels are representatives of each congregation that God has appointed. Not man appointed. God appointed. And it's more important to notice where the angels are. The angels are in the right hand of Jesus, meaning Jesus is in control. And it's in this place of safety and strength. It's, it's even the problem churches that we're going to read about in chapter 2 and 3 that will be described in the fact that understanding that these angels are still in the right hand of God. And it's through this spectacular vision as we go through the book of Revelation, many people will wish they could have this spectacular vision as John did. Oh, God, please give me this spectacular vision that you gave John. Can you give that to me? Be very careful what you ask for. You might be dropping dead, feeling dead, and you might actually die. <laughs> be very careful what you ask. But we can know the very same Jesus John saw and knew. That, 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 that you can know for certain. The Jesus that John knew, you and I can know. Is that exciting? It should be. We can know his purity. We can know his eternal wisdom. We can know even his searching judgment and correction in one's life. We can even know his victory and his authority and his majesty. Do you desire to know him? That's the question. Because he knows you. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He loves you. See, each of these aspects of his nature that we desire to know is ours to know intimately in our own lives. It can be. Now, before John gets to writing about the future, that everyone seems so excited about to figure out and know, he's going to have to address the current problems in the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And as we, Lord willing, continue to open up the book each and every week, we will take one church at a time. We will not rush through each of those churches. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your grace and your mercies that are new every morning.
Thank you for those who you've brought here to be fed, to be equipped, to be encouraged, to go out and to serve their king. To serve you, Lord, wherever you planted them in the workplace, in the neighborhoods, in the circles of friends. May they be equipped now to be that lamp that is bright for you. Empower them by your spirit. More power, more love, more power. More love, more power. And that each person here, Lord, will just fall deeper in love and intimacy with you. Now, if there's anyone here that has not given their life to Jesus, I know the Spirit of God has touched your heart and is asking you to take a step of faith and trust Jesus with your life. If there's anyone that God has touched, because you recognize you're a sinner, you know you need to change. You know you've been living in darkness. You've been living in your little self-bubble so long, you don't even realize being so selfish is now you're more miserable than you've ever thought. Because the more you think about yourself, the more miserable you will become. And Jesus says, I can free you from that. Come to me. And if that's speaking to your heart, while eyes are closed and heads are bowed, just raise your hand. I want to pray for you. I'm not going to call you out. I just want to see who God is touching and saving at this moment in time. Just raise your hand so I can see you. God bless you back there. God bless you back there. Anybody else? I know the Lord. Don't resist the Spirit of God touching your heart. Just take a step. He'll meet you right there. Open up your heart. Open up your life and allow him to come in. Anybody else? Father, we just thank you for the touching of the two people's hearts here that I can know of. There may have been more. But they were willing to take a step of faith and acknowledge in front of me as a witness and you most of all. Their life is now changed. They're asking you to come into their life to take this sinner and to save this sinner by your grace and by your mercy. And by doing this step, Lord, you have to remind them that you have wiped away all their sins, past, present, and even future, to give them a hope and a promise, a future with you, because you're alive. And they choose this day to worship you and to follow you and to turn their lives over to you. Come into their lives, Lord. Seal them for eternity with your Holy Spirit. Change their life, no longer walking in darkness, no longer walking in self, but walking with you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.